You're listening to A Stranger Podcast, www.thestranger.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Podcast. I'm going to date myself. Uh, usually when I talk about how old I am, I tell the truth and say I'm 34 and it's a kind of truth um, in that I tell it. It is true that I say that. It is not true that that is a fact. But it, truthfully, I do run around saying I am 34. I'm not 34. I'm a little older than that. And when I was a kid, cities typically had more than one newspaper. Uh, I grew up in Chicago uh, and when I was young, there were three or four newspapers and Every newspaper had its own advice column and there were two big syndicated advice columns when I was a child, Dear Abby and Ann Landers. And depending on which paper your family took, that's what we used to say, what papers do you take? Depending on which paper your family took, you would wind up being an Ann Landers fan or a Abby fan. Uh, my family, because my grandfather was a newspaper dude, got all the papers. So I grew up reading Ann Landers and Abigail Van Buren's columns, Ask Ann Landers and Dear Abby. And I, you know, being presented with both wound up being an Ann Landers fan. As many of you know, I write Savage Love, my weekly sex advice column, the dirtiest advice column on the face of planet Earth, at Ann Landers' desk, which I bought at the auction of her personal effects along with a whole bunch of awards that were given to Ann Landers on the theory that the only way I would ever get an award for writing an advice column was to go buy Ann Landers' awards because no one's ever given me one. And I have all this and I, and I cherish it. Uh, and, I, and I've always credited like my column in Savage Love really grounded in what Ann Landers did, Xavier Hollander did in Penthouse Magazine uh, her, with her Ask the Madam column and what my mother did, which was just give advice to her friends. Really, these three women uh, prepared me for this career. As my mother always said, I got paid to do what she did for free and isn't that just the way the world works? And it's true. Anyway, Ann Landers died in 2002 and today I just got the news that Pauline Phillips who wrote – Abigail Van Buren, who wrote Dear Abby, she passed away uh, this week. And that makes me very sad. Even though I was an Ann Landers fan, it makes me sad. Now, Ann and Abby were twin sisters. Ann was first. She created the – or inherited. She was given the Ann Landers column that already existed in the Chicago Sun-Times to write and then took ownership of it and uh, really made it her own and made it as this sort of sensation. And her sister was helping her a little bit. Ann would send Abby every once in a while. Then, of course, Epi, letterer, would send – Pauline Phillips, every once in a while, a few letters from her column, and Pauline would send her some suggested responses that then Anne would run, and Pauline figured, I could do this, because the dirty little secret of the advice column racket is really not that hard. Just an opinion about what could or should be done, and everybody has an opinion about what could or should be done. So Pauline ran out, and she started her own advice column uh, in San Francisco in the Chronicle, and then it was syndicated everywhere, and then they became these rival advice columnists, these twin sister rival advice columns. They didn't speak for many, many years and the rivalry really continues into this day. Margot Howard, who is Ann Landers' daughter, she writes her own terrific advice column. She was Prudence for Slate for many years and now she writes her own column and it's wonderful uh, and I read it and so should you. And Jean Phillips, 10 years ago when Pauline Phillips, the original Abby, uh, developed Alzheimer's disease and could no longer write uh, Dear Abby, took it over and so – the rivalry really kind of continues to this day because I don't think Margot and Jean see eye to eye. Uh, I've never seen them drinking together at the annual advice columnists uh, amalgamated union of professional uh, advice columnists convention. When we all get together, I never see them drinking. And I was just reading uh, 
Margot Lee Fox's terrific obit uh, in the New York Times for Pauline Phillips. You really should read the obits in the New York Times. They are wonderful uh, reading and <laughs> very educational. But anyway, she credits Abby for being pithier than Anne. And that's true. Abby was really good with the short, pithy response. And she cites, as everyone cites, uh, the most famous three-word response in the whole sordid history of the advice column racket. This is Abigail Van Buren's answer. Um, and and it, it's really famous. People have talked about this for years. They're not just talking about this now that Abigail Van Buren or Pauline Phillips uh, is resting in peace. They've been talking about this forever. I remember reading about this in uh, books about the gay rights movement 20, 30 years ago. This response that ran in Abigail Van Buren's column. And I'm going to read the letter uh, and her response. Uh, in memory of Pauline Phillips today. So, Dear Abby, 1972, this appeared in her column. Dear Abby, two men who claimed to be father and adopted son just bought an old mansion across the street and fixed it up. We notice a very suspicious mixture of company coming and going at all hours. Blacks, whites, orientals, women who look like men and men who look like women. This has always been considered one of the finest sections of San Francisco, and these weirdos are giving it a bad name. How can we improve the neighborhood? Signed, Knob Hill Residence. Abby writes back, Dear Residence, you could move. <laughs> you could move. How can we improve the neighborhood? The queers have moved in. How can we improve the neighborhood? You could move. That's how you could improve the neighborhood, motherfuckers. That deadly three-word knife to the heart with three twists, one per word, de-fucking-licious. And 1972, she wrote that. 1972, she said to the anti-gay bigot, you're the problem. They're fine. Leave them the fuck alone. You want to improve the neighborhood? Get the fuck out of that neighborhood. That's how you could improve that neighborhood, bigot. That was something in 1972. It really was. 1972, this was a time when a lot of same-sex couples, one partner would adopt the other because it was the only way they could protect each other legally. It's the only way one could inherit the other's property is if they were next of kin. And in a world where you couldn't marry the person you loved, some men adopted the person that they loved to protect that person and protect their relationship. So 1972, you could move. Brilliant. And I just wanted to share that with all of you in memory of Pauline Phillips, Dear Abby, who passed away this week. My sympathies to Jean Phillips, Pauline's daughter and the current author of Dear Abby, and your calls after this. This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Just go to AdamandEve.com and enter SAVAGE at checkout. ExtremeRestraints.com is the ultimate no-holds-barred sex toy store. Whether it's premium lubes, eight-speed wand massagers, electrosex gear, or fucking machines, Extreme Restraints brings you a wide selection and low prices. You can take an extra 10% off ExtremeRestraints.com's already low prices with coupon code GGG2013. Double that discount for 20% off if you use GGG2013 by Sunday. Hi, Dan. One of my best friends is a really, really spectacular guy, really good guy, one of the sweetest men you're ever going to meet. And he's so, so emotionally fragile. And this has been the case since we were kids. And I'm really kind of the more level-headed one. And, you know, even when things get rough, I can keep my, my head on straight and always think clearly. So he comes to me for advice when things get rough. And recently, the love of his life left him for reasons that are very much my friend's fault. Um, 
he had a problem, personal problem, that he's now taken care of, um, you know, through considerable effort on his part. He's a very strong person. But the girl left him. She's gone. She's not coming back. And he is in tatters. And normally, I feel like I'd be the one ready to give him advice, except for that not too long ago, the girl I was in love with left me for reasons that were entirely my fault. And I've kind of lost my bearings as the advice giver. Um, I feel like normally I'd know what to tell my sensitive friend, but now I have become the sensitive, lovelorn friend. So, Dan, what, like, remind me, I feel as though I've, I've lost my level-headed way. What do you tell someone in a situation like this when the situation is, yeah, it is your fault. She left you because you fucked up. And, you know, you're getting better. You're working hard at it. That's great. We all love you. We will always love you. But she's not coming back because you fucked up. And what do you, where do you go from there? Remind me how to give advice, Dan. <laughs> Thanks. Here's what you tell your friend. And you probably need to tell yourself this too. So you tell it to him, then he tells it to you. Some pooches can't be unscrewed. Sometimes you screw the pooch and that's it. That's a screwed forever pooch. There's no unscrewing it. Luckily, however, there are a lot more pooches in the world. That's an awkward transition to the point that there are 3.5 billion other women on the planet. When you fuck up in this way where you've done something that's such a violation of someone else's feelings or trust that they're out, they're gone and they are never coming back. It doesn't matter how much better you get, whatever self-improvement projects you launch into, that relationship is over, what you tell them is now you know not to make that mistake again in your next relationship and you know to think things through a little bit in your next relationship because you know what the consequences can be to a violation of that sort even if it's not the exact same violation. You learn from this painful experience. What you learn is that fucking hurt and I'm not going to do that to myself again. It's the same thing you learned about a hot stove when you were three fucking years old. You learn that about relationships as an adult or a young adult typically by burning yourself badly. And your friend, and it sounds like you too, you've burnt yourselves badly. You screwed the pooch completely and there's no unscrew in that pooch. So pick yourselves up, dust yourselves off, grieve, mourn, let that person go because you have no choice because they're gone. And don't do this again. Don't fuck yourselves like this again in your next relationships. And you will have a next relationship. Someone obviously felt strongly enough about your friend to be close enough to him and open enough to him that she could be this violated by him. So he obviously has the emotional skills to get that close to someone and the you know charisma and attractiveness to attract someone. So he can bring someone else into his life again. Just don't fucking do this to the next person that he brings into his life again or he will be back in this painful place and he doesn't want to be there. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I am a 20-year-old straight female. Um, I was raised in a incredibly Catholic family. Um, I have two older brothers who are gay and one of them just, uh, my oldest one, who is now 24, has been living with his um, boyfriend in Georgia. Um, I'm from California. And he just came out to my parents 
maybe two hours ago. And I don't know how to be the most supportive sister while still maintaining a relationship with my incredibly homophobic parents. I don't know what to do. So uh, any update? How are your parents doing? How's your brother doing? How's your presumably closeted other gay brother doing? No. So I have two older brothers, and they're both gay. Are they both out? Um, to my parents, um, about one and a half are out. <laughs> um, so the oldest one did tell my parents, and um, he is no longer at home. No surprise. He um, actually was um, at my house for um, the winter break, and then um, when he told my parents, he stayed at his friend's house until his flight home um, back to his boyfriend's. Okay, um, so well, the, are you living at home? No, I'm a student at uh, the university, so I'm also out home, not home for the winter break. Oh, okay. And your other brother, is he out of the house? He is also out of the house. Are you depend- um, Are you dependent on your parents for financial support? Um, in order to get um, scholarship money, yes, for like they're not they don't give me money, but I need their financial situation so that I can get right money. Uh, and are your brothers financially dependent upon your parents in any way? Uh, no, not at all. Okay, so here's what you do. Uh, you get a, you get a pass if you know you're a young adult and you're getting an education and your parents are so bigoted or hateful that you fear that they may retaliate against you um, financially and screw up your education in the future. You get a pass on like you know shining your parents on. Uh, so I mm-hmm. uh, you know your brothers are in a position now where they should both be fully out to your parents and be like, all right, have your fit and get it out of your system. And here's a P flag chapter. And I'm not going to see you guys or have anything to do with you guys if you can't love and accept me. And I'm gay. Hello. Get over mm-hmm. it. Uh, and, and you, if you're dependent on your parents in some way, when you fear they may retaliate, you're allowed to shine your parents on a little bit and play both sides. Be like, oh, yeah, I see you're really upset. Yeah. Mm, uh, mm. Without saying anything definitive, while telling your brothers, I would hope, 100% on your side, got your backs, I have your support, let's work on mom and dad together, all of us. And that's what you guys should be doing is working on them. And, presenting, on the United, and presenting a united front because remember – uh, you know, if, you're, if your parents are going to put you in a position where you have to choose between your brothers and them, I would encourage you to choose your brothers because your parents are going to die one day and you're going to have your siblings left in your life. Right? Uh-huh. So who yeah. do you want to have uh, you know, a, a relationship with? If bigotry is forcing you to choose between one or the other, how about choosing the non-bigoted option and also the likelier to spend a lot more time in your life option, which is your brothers? Yes. What are your parents doing that's making you upset and weepy on your call? Um, well, uh, they constantly, whenever my brothers mention a girl, if it's, oh, I'm going hang- to hang out with a friend, they always ask, oh, is she pretty? Just even though they already know that they're gay. Okay. Why is that making you cry? Because they're purposely ignoring a big part of my brother's lie. Okay. They're being dicks. Right, they're having their tantrum. Parents do this when their kids come out. They have their tantrum. They they say rude things. They, they you know they get in the little comment here and there to express their displeasure and disapproval. Your parents aren't beating your brothers. They're not throwing them out of the house. They're not 
calling the middle of the night and screaming and yelling or sicking missionaries on them or anything really horrible. Is that, if that's the first thing that comes to mind when I say, what are your parents doing? That's pretty small beans and it shouldn't be that upsetting to you. Let mom and dad work through this stage, which is the being baby dicks having a tantrum stage of your kids just coming out to you. Give them a little room to be awful and, and, and permission to be awful. Let them have their tantrum. Don't let it work. That's what you do with children who have tantrums is you let them have it, but you don't let it work. You don't give them what they're tantruming for. And when your parents are throwing a tantrum for is they're trying to push your brothers back into the closet and trying to get them to date women. None of this is going to happen, right? As soon as they realize that their bullshit, snide remarks and their tantrums aren't going to change your brothers, the sooner the tantrums end. Mm-hmm. But don't take it so much to heart that they're being dicks. That's their shit. That ain't your shit. Mm-hmm. Anything else that they're doing that's dicky? Well, they just uh, are just jerks. <laughs> any any mention of like Obama or any liberal situation, it always they always say that it's just wrong. <laughs> okay, and they're free to think that. And what you guys need to do is form a united front. And say, you're free to think that, mom and dad. When you express it, and we would hope that you would grow out of this as so many other people with gay children have, when you express it, it makes us not want to be around you. So what you're doing by do, – if, if this persists into the future long term, what you need to say to them is you are destroying your relationships with your children. Is that what you want to do? Because that's what you're doing. And be that blunt. You guys, the three of you as a united front, you have leverage – over your parents. That leverages your presence in their lives. And they can have their they can have you in their lives on their terms, which is what they're trying to do by being towering dicks about all of this. Or you can turn that around on them and say, you can have us in your life on our terms. Love, respect, support. We can agree to disagree about liberal this, liberal that. But we will not be disrespected. I will not stand idly by while you piss on my brothers who are gay. You're going to love and support all of us or you two can fuck the fuck off. You got to get there. But give them time. Give them a couple years to have their tantrum and then have the come to gay Jesus talk with them. But you sound really sensitive to their assholery. You need to let your skin thicken up about this. Mm -hmm. Let mom and dad say what they're going to say. Let it roll off your back. Don't take it to heart. And remember, you've got your brothers, they've got you. And that's what really matters. Uh-huh. Okay? Yes, thank and, you. And when you feel yourself like, you know, oh, so sad about what your parents are doing, go online and Google image the, the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s and see people marching for their civil rights being torn apart by dogs and shot by water hoses. Mm-hmm. It helps put into perspective a, per, a parent's snide remark. Not the worst thing that could possibly happen to someone who's struggling for acceptance in this culture. Uh Okay? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much. Good luck. This episode is brought to you by AdamandEve.com. For a limited time only, Adam and Eve will let you pick three free adult DVDs with your order. Go to AdamandEve.com and order almost any one item at 50% off. Choose a new adult toy, lube, or almost anything from over 18,000 adult products. Then at checkout, enter offer code SAVAGE and you'll get to choose three free adult DVDs. That's right. You get to choose your own DVDs. Plus, receive a free mystery gift and free shipping on your entire order. Choose from all kinds of genres for both gay and straight folks. And now you can also shop on your mobile phone at Adam and Eve. That's adamandeve.com and enter Savage at checkout. 
Hi, Dan. I'm a 25-year-old female calling straight in a monogamous relationship. And my question for you is, how do I introduce some erotica or some sort of fun fetish type of sex to my relationship? My partner is very open to the idea of it, as am I. But the problem is that he and I are both alcoholics. I have two years sober. He has four years sober. And my fear is that being an addict alcoholic, that as soon as I introduce the erotica to our sex life, that it will just take flight and it will basically consume our sex life, just as if, you know, you could take the first drink, as they say, an alcoholic anonymous, if you take the first drink, you're bound to get drunk. Um, and I don't want my sex life with my partner to be consumed with erotica or anything like that. We have a good sex life right now. I'm interested in introducing some sort of erotica to our sex life. Something new with like dressing up or leather or something to that degree would be kind of fun. Um, with my ex-boyfriend, he was also an alcoholic, um, and I used to dress up for him. And then uh, in these funny outfits, uh, role-playing type stuff, and it just got out of control, and he wanted me to dress up every single time. So that's my basic, that's my fear. S&M isn't alcohol. Uh, it doesn't have chemical properties necessarily. You're not going to get addicted to fantasy or S&M. But even if you did, even if you replaced... Uh, your alcohol problem or your boyfriend's alcohol problem or problem with alcohol or problem drinking with problem fucking, wouldn't that be better? I knew a guy years ago uh, who was addicted to crystal meth. Oh, I didn't know him when he was addicted to crystal meth uh, and got off crystal meth and then missed the sort of you know bungee jump sensation of danger and risk and craziness and the intensity of uh, of sex on crystal meth. And he realized that one way to replace that was doing hardcore BDSM. And so he replaced – he got rid of the meth and brought in the S&M. And you could do the same thing. You can get rid of the booze and bring in the S&M and it may give you that intensity of experience and fantasy. And you know what booze does is it makes you feel like someone else and makes you feel super powered and super charged and destroys your liver and your life and your family and your job and everything else potentially if you abuse it too much. Um, and you can get that charge maybe – through fantasy, through role play, through things you can put on and off and be somebody else without having to uh, shred your liver or your life in the process. So don't fear the kink. This sounds like a much healthier way to explore your desire for intense experiences than boozing your way there. And you can always walk back. You won't develop a chemical dependency upon bondage. You won't. So if you decide one day to go cold turkey on bondage or S&M or outfits, you're not going to get the delirium tremors. You're not going to be on the floor shivering. You're not going to have to check into a clinic and be watched. You're just going to have to put down the ball gag and step away from the ball gag. Your experience in the previous relationship where it got out of control and he wanted you to dress up every time, that was just a kinkster asshole that you were with. They're out there. That guy didn't have a drinking problem. He had a kinking problem. And his kinking problem, which is really common, which is you know, the ingrate kinkster who meets somebody who's going to indulge him or she meets someone who's going to indulge her and then they forget or cease to meet their vanilla partner's needs and they allow their kink to completely take over and kind of destroy their relationship and now it does kind of sound like kink is booze, right? You can't destroy a relationship with kink. You're not going to get addicted 
to it. And what destroyed the relationship was the inconsideration and the selfishness, not the kink. It was the inconsideration and the selfishness. It destroyed your previous relationship. So be conscious of those things, of that possibility and control for it. Say we're not going to do this all the time. Uh, We need to check in with each other a lot and make sure that our needs are being met and this isn't completely taking over if that's not what we both want. Some people totally both want is a takeover and if it works for them, it works for them. But if it's not what you both want, then you need to make sure that you're both getting your needs met and taking care of each other and that one of you isn't insisting on the outfits or the bondage or the ball gags all the time while the other feels deprived or that their needs aren't being met or they're being neglected or taken advantage of. You can do this. Please don't fear your own passions and desires. Go for it. Now, your call used the words sex and addict and addiction in the same you know, general vicinity of each other. And I'm sure a lot of people out there heard the phrase sex addiction uh, even though it wasn't really a part of the call, it's just that that buzz phrase is so strong in our culture and in the media right now. We're constantly hearing about people who are addicted to sex and sex addicts and every husband who looks at porn on Dr. Phil is a sex addict and every Tiger Woods is a sex addict and people are going to sex addiction clinics. And I have always had a problem with that phrase, that model. Uh, I've always considered it kind of bullshit. But it wasn't until I read You're Addicted to What?, Challenging the Myth of Sex Addiction by Dr. Marty Klein in the July-August 2012 issue of The Humanist that I felt sane. I felt like, hmm, I'm not the only person out there. And uh, clearly there are people out there who are smarter about this than I am, about calling bullshit on the sex addiction model. Joining me now by phone is Dr. Marty Klein, sex therapist and marriage and family therapist, author of seven books including Sexual Intelligence, What We Really Want from Sex and How to Get It. Thank you for jumping on the phone with me, Dr. Klein. I'm delighted to be here, Dan. I can't tell you how much I loved your article. I encourage everyone to go to thehumanist.org and look it up. It's called You're Addicted to What? I just want to sit back in my chair and say, Dr. Klein, would you please call bullshit on sex addiction right now, right here uh, on my show? Because I get calls all the time from people saying, oh, my boyfriend's a sex addict. I'm a sex addict. What is up with that? Well, you know, in the old days, in the old days, people said that uh, it was a morality issue. Now it's a disease issue. It's a public health issue. And I think a lot of the whole sex addiction movement is simply uh, an attempt to pathologize sexual expression that somebody doesn't like. So when one person wants sex a lot more than the other, it's pretty easy nowadays to use this expression of sex addiction to say this person has a disease. And, uh, of course, uh, with the addiction industry being so popular in this country, uh, the infrastructure of handling that disease of sex addiction was all set up. And so um, the second that this concept was invented, and by the way, it comes out of the addiction field, not out of the sex therapy field at all. The second that Pat Carnes uh, invented sex addiction in 1986, it fit into the pre-existing infrastructure of 12-step programs and um, and all of that. But, and, but it's, uh, not just, it's not just people looking at other people saying, oh, look at the porn you're watching. You're a sex addict. Oh, you had a lot of sex with a lot of people. You're a sex addict. People call and say, I can't stop looking at porn. I am a sex addict. Well, I I believe that there's a lot of people in distress about their own sexual behavior. I mean, that's how you and I make a living. So (laughs) I... 
and and that's <laughs> so so I believe that there are people who are in distress about their sexuality and their sexual decision making. Um, but I think what's true, particularly when it comes to sex, I think what's true is that people are making decisions whose consequences they don't like, and they're labeling that as being out of control. There's a difference between feeling out of control and being out of control. I think a lot of people who label themselves as sex addicts or porn addicts, what they're saying is, uh, when they say, I'm out of control, what they really mean is, you know, it would be really uncomfortable to make different decisions about sex than the ones that I'm making. When I'm lonely, it would be really uncomfortable to not look at porn. When I feel um, embarrassed about my sexual fantasies, it would be really um, uncomfortable to do this about them instead of that. And that's what, what I'm seeing clinically. That's what a lot of people are seeing clinically, that... Um, you know, people say, I can't, I can't stop having affairs. Yeah, you can stop having affairs, but you'd have to deal with some serious emotional issues that would be very uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I can't stop going to hookers. I think you could stop going to hookers if you were willing to deal with emotional issues that may have to do with loneliness, may have to do with shame, may have to do with guilt. And maybe you could deal with all those issues and you're still going to go to hookers. Maybe it's about letting go... Of the you shame might. And, and not condemning yourself for it. But there are people out there who are yes. who do seem out of control, seem like it's a compulsion. They can't close the laptop and back away. They can't well, they can true. do it. They can do it, but they're not doing it and they're framing it as I can't. Is that because they don't want to that they frame it that way? I'm powerless in the face of my laptop. I, I think that's a lot of it. I think that, that people are feeling I'm powerless in the face of this um unending source of stimulation. I mean, that's what the laptop is. It's, it's a perpetual motion machine. It's the thing everyone's been looking for all our lives, right? It's an unending source of stimulation, and it doesn't ask for very much from us. All it asks is our attention. And, you know, that's sort of everybody's ideal about relationships is that, some, you know, I would find somebody who would just give and give and give and give endlessly and not ask for anything. As, you, as we all know, that doesn't really exist. We may look for it, but it doesn't exist. But with the Internet, finally, after, you know, 150,000 years of human evolution, it finally exists. It's not a person. It's a stream of electrons. But uh, it, the laptop or, or, you know, whatever digital equipment people are using, it finally is a source of unending and undemanding stimulation. And people are going to have to figure out how to deal with that. The human brain was not adapted um, to deal with unlimited hunting opportunities. You know, it used to be you could only hunt as far as your feet could take you in a day and as, as well as your eyes could see during daylight. Now you can hunt 24 hours a day. And the human brain is sort of exploding with that, with that possibility. But I don't think the issue is sex. And I don't think the issue is that people are out of control as much as um, they're confronted with this new uh, vehicle for unlimited simulation, and they haven't figured out yet how to be disciplined about it. So what would you tell someone who came to you and said, I am a porn addict, and you say, no, you're not. There's no such thing as sex addiction. This porn addiction shit is bullshit. These are, these, this concept, erototoxins, which some people argue is, oh, you know, we've looked at a brain of somebody looking at porn, and the same places are firing that fire when somebody shoots heroin. And you call bullshit on that in the article in a, in a really devastating way. But what do you Thank say to you. somebody who says, I can't, you know, what, what do I do? Okay, so you're right. I'm not a sex addict, but I spend all day long every day looking at porn. What do I do to change this? 
Well, first, I would be sympathetic to the person. You know, you don't want to minimize the value of that. And then uh, what I would say is, well, how do you feel when you're not looking at porn? And I would talk about what do you want to do about that? What do you want to do about the fact that when you're not looking at porn, you feel completely isolated? What do you want to do about the fact that when you don't look at porn, you are bored to death? So um, the only way to find out that information, of course, would be to stop looking at porn for five minutes. Mm -hmm. The the other thing I want to say about this, Tim, is um, that... We need to we need to be looking at what is the relationship alternative that people feel is available to them if they're not going to use porn or if they're not going to masturbate three or four times a day. A lot of people don't have a decent sexual relationship or a decent emotional relationship. And so it makes a lot of sense that they're turning to porn or they're turning to, uh, to masturbating or they're turning to commercial sex or whatever it is. It makes a lot of sense that people are turning to those things when the alternative is um, sex that's really boring or sex that induces guilt or the lack of sex altogether or the fact that, um, you know, going to a prostitute, that's the only place that they feel they can uh, actually be honest about the kind of sex that turns them on. So and maybe if you fix that, if you if they're empowered and secure enough to be honest about what really turns them on with their partner, if they have one that they're actually emotionally involved with and vulnerable in front of, maybe then they won't be seeking to get these needs met elsewhere through porn or through sex workers. Not that there's anything wrong with sex workers or porn, but if it's swamping your life, there's something potentially wrong with you, is what you're saying. And that's what the sex addiction model can't handle. The sex addiction model does not say... Um, you know, the fact that you like to go to prostitutes may not be the problem. It may, it, there may be something else involved altogether. And if you could accept that you're a guy who likes to wear pantyhose, or if you could accept that you're somebody who likes to be spanked during sex, if you could actually talk to your sexual partner and say, you know, I'm, I'm not happy with the configuration of our sex life, then maybe uh, a lot of the shame or a lot of the guilt would go away. Maybe a person would actually be willing to engage with another person emotionally, and that's the beginning of change. But the sex addiction model doesn't take, take that possibility into account. How much of the, the sex addiction model, what is said, uh, is really, and maybe this is just me being a, a conspiracy theorist and a, a gay dude, but what I see, you know, you don't hear a lot of gay guys accusing their gay boyfriends or husbands of being sex addicts because they look at porn. That this seems to be, to, to my eye, a lot of what I see sloshing around out there on Dr. Phil and in other places and Dr. Drew, everybody who's a doctor except for you, sometimes it feels like, is pathologizing male sexuality. And when you get gay guys in relationships, like, we get it. You know, you watch an hour of porn a day, okay, you are you don't have a porn problem, you're just another guy. But in straight relationships, it seems much more fraught. You know, I'm so glad to hear you say that because um, I don't see a lot of gender issues in, sexual, in, in sexuality, but this is a place where I do see a lot of gender issues. And I hear a lot of women say, I can't compete with those women that you're having sex with on the Internet. And I think it's time that women stop trying to compete with photographs or movies. <laughs> I think it's time that women started to say, um, 
uh, I do have to say to themselves, I have something to offer that a photograph doesn't. And if my partner doesn't want to take advantage of it, what's going on with that? Rather than you have to stop looking at porn because... Um, because all you're doing is you're jacking off to pictures of pretty 20-year-olds, and I'm not a pretty 20-year-old. And I, I think it's time that women took more responsibility for how they feel about their own bodies instead of playing the victim to, I can't compete with a movie. You don't have to compete with a movie, and you don't have to compete with a photograph. It's That's funny because uh, we, we, we say, and all of us in the advice industrial complex are compelled to say, that you know, true and lasting love and sexual affection, eventually, even if uh, physical attraction what brings you together initially, you, you know, see each other across a crowded room, that sort of love and intimacy and sex and desire will transcend the physical. That's why people who've been together 40 years still want to fuck each other even if they don't look like they looked 40 fucking years ago. And so, But somebody will then say, when you look at that two-dimensional image of a complete stranger and you're attracted merely by the surface, I feel like I can't compete with that. But – you're not having some sort of transcendent relationship and an emotional connection of of many years' duration with that photograph. That's completely Correct. the physical first sight thing that initially brought you together being sort of re-experienced. And I feel like people don't give themselves credit. I don't look like I looked 20 years ago when Terry and I first met. But he loves me uh, enough that I think it blurs his vision at times. <laughs> and I just feel like people sometimes when I talk to women, particularly about porn, they're not giving themselves the credit for everything else they bring to the table in addition to how they look now, which is also appealing. Yes, that's absolutely true. And by the way, they, they still don't make porn that kisses, you know? Uh, they still don't make porn that hugs. And that's, among other things, that's what a real-life person can bring to a sexual situation that porn can't. And it's, it's, it's really uh, an adult developmental task for every man and every woman of every orientation that at every step of life, we have to be able to say, this is what makes me sexually desirable. And at 20 or at 30, what you say makes you sexually desirable may be different than what you say at 50. This is what makes me sexually desirable. But this is an adult developmental task. And it's not just something that women have to do. It's something that both men and women have to do. Saying this to, to oneself, this is what makes me sexually desirable. And if you can't say that, if you can't identify what makes you sexually desirable, what makes you feel that way, then uh, it's very easy to blame porn or to blame sex workers or to blame fetish gear. Um, but I think that's, that's not really addressing the issue where, where it needs to be addressed. Dr. Marty Klein, sex therapist, marriage and family therapist, author of seven books, including Sexual Intelligence, What We Really Want from Sex and How to Get It. He wrote the brilliant takedown of the sex addiction model industry, horse shittery, you're Addicted to What? Challenging the Myth of Sex Addiction at The Humanist. Please go read it. Dr. Klein, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, my great pleasure. When you're in the market for a powerful wand massager and enhancing wand attachments for your personal pleasure and a three-inch wide dildo with a compatible strap-on harness to use on your boyfriend, ExtremeRestraints.com has plenty of choices for you. 
Extreme Restraints offers a wide selection and low prices for just about every sexual interest. Don't want to pay out the nose for a body-safe paraben and glycerin-free lube? Extreme Restraints can get you 34 ounces of passion lube for only $22.95. Want to experiment with chastity play? Extreme Restraints has over a dozen cock cages and plenty of even more devious devices. No matter what you order, ExtremeRestraints.com, be sure to save 10% by using the coupon code GGG2013. Use it by Sunday and get that doubled for 20% off your order. Just use the coupon code GGG2013 by Sunday. Hello, Dan Savage. I've been with my boyfriend for about three years. We've been living together for two and a half of them. I'm 24. He's 23. We've gotten to the point in our relationship where our sex is really, really boring. It is so boring. I have to smoke weed in order to get an orgasm or really intense myself up with porn when I get home and really get myself prepped up in order to get off. He told me he wants a threesome as his fantasy because we both discussed what our fantasies were. And he told me that his fantasy was to have a threesome. So I've contacted escorts, I've talked to bisexual girls, I've been trying the best that I can to find that magical unicorn to have that threesome with. But yet, I told him I just want him to get a little bit more passionate and more rough with me in bed, and it it just seems like he hasn't tried. Our sex has become a routine. It's killing me. I love him to death. I want to have a life with him and everything, but... How am I supposed to have a life with someone that won't even rough me around in bed? How do I get it across to him that it is really important to me that we have rough sex? I'm trying to get this threesome together. He wants to have anal, so we've been working towards that. I mean, I do everything he asks of me, but he hasn't done the same. So I just would like your opinion as to what I could do to make him get a little bit more passionate and more rough with me and a way for me to come across as, hey, this is what I want, instead of criticizing him because he takes criticism very badly. I would really appreciate your help. It's killing me. Your boyfriend sounds like a real winner. You're out there beating the bushes for a third and you're working toward anal because that's what he wants to do. And he can't rough you up and have rough sex the way you want it. Maybe he's incapable of it. Maybe he has no affinity for that. Maybe he can't do it. Or it's actively a turnoff for him to be rough with a woman, to, 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 you know, to be that kind of rough and tumble, throw you around partner that you clearly want and need and deserve. And if that's the case, if what he's telling you is I can't do this and have an erection, I can't do this and have sex, it doesn't turn me on – is he the right guy for you? Doesn't sound like it, right? If what he's saying is I cannot do this, you're going to have to break up with him because you will never be fulfilled in this relationship. You are sexually incompatible. Suppose he can do it and he just refuses for some perverse reason. He just won't do it. Then you're going to have to break up with him because you're not emotionally compatible because you're out there doing for him. You're out there being GGG and making it happen. For him, and he couldldn't care less. He can't be bothered to do, to do the same for you. 
that's not, you know, on the reciprocity scale, that's not so hot. That's not so good. And you're going to have to break up with them. So what I, whether one of, one of these two things is going on, can't because sexually short circuits him, doesn't work for him, doesn't turn him on, absolutely can't do it, or just selfishly will not do it. Whichever one it is, the relationship's over. So what you need to do is you need to go to him and say, which is it? Is it can't or is it won't? Because if it's can't, I'm out. If it's won't, I'm out. Maybe there's this tiny chance, little sliver of a chance that it's something else. And it doesn't realize that he must to keep you in his life and is being a lazy, self-centered, sexually selfish bag of dicks about this. And he's like, oh, yeah, I'll get to – oh, yeah, that's pretty fun. I like that sometimes. We'll get to it. We'll get to it. But he doesn't actually ever bring it. Because he doesn't realize that for you, this is so important that you're going to dump his fucking ass if he doesn't come through. So tell him by dumping him, by threatening to dump him, by making it clear that if it's can't or won't, he's out, he's over, it's done. And if it's just didn't realize I had to and now I will, if that was what was going on, you will get that out of him. You will get him to do it if he's capable of it and was just being a lazy, selfish bag of dicks so long as he knows that if it's can't or won't, he's dumped. So go to him and say, is it can't or is it won't? Because if it's can't or won't, it's over. But if it just didn't realize I had to soon, then we're good. So long as soon means in the next 48 hours, not in the next 48 months. Hi, Dan. I was just calling in with a comment for episode 325. Uh, Somebody had asked about mutual masturbation and how does that work? And how do you make it work in a practical sense? And you were talking about how it's not necessarily... Uh, lying flat on your back side by side. But I just want to see it could be. I've totally done that with my boyfriend before. And if you're laying right next to each other, like making direct eye contact the entire time, it's pretty fucking hot. Of course, there. I mean, there are plenty of other ways to roll around and touch each other. I'm a huge fan of non-penetrative sex and just having sexy time that don't have to have a necessary... Uh, goal intended. I think that's often the best kind of sex is just um, having fun, uh, which is the most important thing to keep in mind, I think, is uh, that sex should just be about having fun, not about producing orgasms. Um, but anyway, I just wanted to cast a vote in favor of laying on your back side-by-side mutual masturbation, because if you do it right, uh, that could be a super fun time. Hi, this is just a comment about marriage equality. I had an experience this morning that I wanted to share that I thought was a positive movement in the right direction. As my daughter was getting ready for school this morning, she was playing with her stuffed animals and my father-in-law is visiting and they were pretending to marry off different stuffed animals. And at one point she married off two, what I guess she had identified as two male stuffed animals. And my father-in-law said, oh, they can't get married. They're two boys. And she, without missing a beat, just looked up and said, oh, yes, they can. They're gay. And two seconds later, my father-in-law nodded and said, oh, right, of course. And I thought that was such a great moment to see reaching across the generations from a six-year-old to a 70-year-old that the perspective has changed and that the historical tide of marriage equality is without a doubt unstoppable. Her generation will look back at a time when there was no marriage equality and just laugh because it was so ridiculous. So even though I know there's so much more work to be done, even though I know we have to keep our pedal on the gas and make sure that we continue to provide this to people today and not just think about the future, I do think it's hopeful that the future is unstoppable, that marriage equality will exist, 
and that my daughter will never know anything other than that. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescued, um, and all the listeners. I'm actually calling with a follow-up. Um, I called on episode 311. I was the one whose fiancé passed away a week after we got engaged. And I just wanted to say thank you, Dan, um, and everybody who called with encouragement. It may not have seemed like much, but your words really helped me a lot. I've been realizing, I guess, that if I could have lost such a strong love in my life and still be me, then things will be okay. And, you know, things are still hard, but they're getting much better. So I guess I I owe a lot of the positivity I've been trying to find in this situation to you, Dan, and um, your listeners. So thank you all so much. Thank you. Thank you for that callback. We appreciate it. And we're all still rooting for you. We're going to leave it there. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. Remember, February 14th, Savage Love Live at the Neptune Theater, a special live taping of the Savage Love Cast. For single people on Valentine's Day, there will be so much fun. Lap dances, the human cupcake bondage demos, sex advice with me and Mistress Matisse, and more 8 p.m. Seattle's Neptune Theater Thursday, February 14th doors at 7, show at 8 uh, go to tinyearl.com slash savlove s-a-v-l-o-v tinyearl.com slash savlove I got an email today yelling at me for using Earl am I supposed to say tiny.url is this like clitoris? Am I screwing it up? No, the text if you tell me I can pronounce it. Earl. Tinyearl.com slash S-A-V-L-O-V. Please join us at the Neptune Theater on Valentine's Day. 206-201-2720 is the number here at the podcast. Give us a call with your questions or comments. The podcast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me in the text savvy at risk youth. We'll be back at you next week with another installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for now.